House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Mr. David North Martino is lurking somewhere in the dark. I'm lurking. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put it, Al. You're lurking. 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 He's lurking, lurking in the basement. In the basement of the house yeah. of mystery. Yeah, you got to be careful. I'm yeah. glad they don't let you out in the street. We've got they enough don't. problems. We don't need any more. Yeah. You know, that's something. That's, that is true. It's not that, you know, Superman couldn't handle this. No. You know. <laughs> anyway, crazy. Another crazy week, and, uh, you know, it'll be day another day of COVID for me, but that's okay. I'm, like I said, I'm not going to mention who I blame it on, and she knows it, but that's okay. <laughs> anyway, so now we've got uh, a, a, another a real Superman here. This is a guy that's been uh, doing a lot of community service, you might say. He's just he's been uh, a police officer, a paratrooper. You know, he's just uh, you know he's done it all. I, ca I can't mention how much there's so much going on here. Um, and now he's an author, and he's got a uh, two-book series. This will be uh, the new one just come out here in September, I believe the 30th, and it's called uh, Nunzio's Way. It's book two of the Weepers series, which is his uh, book series, so we're going to talk to him about this. Um, so uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Nick Chiaricus. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Alan and Dave. Thank You're you. welcome. Thanks for having me, and I wish you well. A quick recovery. Well, you know, uh, you know, I've made it sixty. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, got to be happy for what we have. Sixty's a good. Yeah, age. it actually it is. Except for I don't want to get older. I just want to stay there. <laughs> just stay. Stop. Stop moving. No more. Yeah. Do that. Yeah, they won't let me. <laughs> Um, so you, you grew up, and you mentioned this in your bio, you know, at the Al Smith Housing Projects, and that was the uh, in uh, Manhattan's Lower East Side, and it's kind of a, uh, I don't know how to describe it, kind of a rougher sort of part of town. Yeah, yeah. A, a tough, low-income housing project in an area known as the Five Points or the Two Bridges neighborhood, birthplace i think of street gangs probably so so when you grow up in in that kind of a setting you know you get into you know policing and you get into uh the army and you get into um being part of a um, organized crime commission you know like you get you get really into um things that are more anti-crime so was that kind of because of growing up in a neighborhood like that, you wanted it to be better, or what? What? What's the thing that happens to you when you do that? I wish I had. I wish I had a real Marvel comic book answer to that. But the truth is, um, you you wind up. You wind up. We kids. I was in a street gang. Um, I was also an Eagle Scout, by the way. At the same time, <laughs> um, we. We kids have to decide what we want to, what we, what jobs we want when we grow up. And so I thought I wanted to be a longshoreman um, because the overtime was good. Um, other kids wanted to be cops. Other kids wanted to join the mob. We knew 
the, the organized crime guys in the neighborhood. Um, I knew them uh, extremely well. One of them, well, well let me just be straightforward with you, but don't tell anybody. So one of, one of them is my real, my real uncle, uh, Uncle Mario, who uh, told us kids, listen, don't decide what kind of job you want. Decide the kind of man you want to be. You want to be a stand-up guy. You want to be a guy that if, if you decide the job you want, you lose it. You got nothing. But if you decide the kind of man you want to be, you'll always have that. Um, much of my book, uh, Nunzio's Way is the second one, and Weepers, the first one, where I introduced Nunzio, is stories that Mario told me, stories that the women and the men that sat on benches watching us would tell us. Um, they were all storytellers. This, this was the 50s. Um, and uh, if Chico's mother saw me doing something and said, Nikki, stop doing that, or I'll tell your mother, I'd stop. Um, <laughs> And it, things got rid the police were never called. The police never came in to the projects. And if things got really bad, I would go to Uncle Mario, tell you a funny story. Um, when I was writing Weepers, first book, um, I said to Mario, you know, I'm going to put you in here because uh, I want to use and I'll, and I'll use your name. And he said, don't use my name. I don't want. I don't want you to use my name. I get enough publicity. <laughs> and I said, okay, what name do you want me to use? And he said, Nunzio. It's my favorite pizza place on Madison Street. <laughs> so that's how Nunzio came about. But we were just looking for jobs with some security. Um, right after high school, I joined the Army. And when I came out of the Army, um, my father originally was a longshoreman. But then he became a cop, and two of my uncles became New York cops, and another uncle became a fireman. And I took the police test before I got out of the Army, and they accepted me. And it was just uniform to uniform, secure job. I was actually for about four months, and I loved the job. I was selling, when I first got out of the Army, I was selling jewelry for Mario Bucciolati's on Fifth Avenue. And it was a wonderful, lovely experience. I was waiting to be called into the academy. And um, so I became a cop, not really because I wanted to fight crime. or, or I never liked bullies. I, I wanted to protect people. I was idealistic. But I think the truth is I became a cop because it was a job that I can get as soon as I got out of the army. I knew how to wear a uniform and I knew how to march and I knew how to take orders. It's not a great, not a great answer. I know, but no, but, 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 you know, when you're a kid and you're in the, in a, in a rough part of town and you're part of a gang and an Eagle Scout and stuff, why not take the easier way and get into gang sort of stuff and stealing and making money that way? It's, it's, a, it's a lot quicker and easier way to make money than actually going into the army and, and, doing all that work or even working a job where you're making, you know, uh, you, you make money and you might like it, but it's just not very much money. Like you could do so much better. I'm just trying to think what, what was it do you think that made you take uh, the other way and not jump into that world? I didn't like the guys. I mean, I knew them and um, I knew what they were like and I would talk to them. Um, but I, I didn't like the stuff they did. And I didn't want to hang out with them. You know, it, it, 
I, I'm, I'm sitting, stop me if I go on too long, please. But I, I, it's, it's the mid fifties. I'm probably 12 years old. I'm 11 years old, maybe because I was working at a grocery store and, um, I'm sitting on a bench in, uh, the cement playground in the projects. Actually, I'm sitting on the top of the bench with my feet on the bottom where people sit because that was cool with high top PF canvas sneakers and reading a little Lulu comic and a kid named Sylvester Riley, uh, 16 years old, tough kid, comes up to me and says, let me hold your comic book. And I said, I put it up a fight, otherwise I'm a punk. And he took away the comic book and pushed me over the back of the bench into these brittle bushes. And looked around, nobody saw anything, so that was cool. Dusted myself off, went up to my apartment, and my sweet Italian mother was there and said to me, I wish you could see my hands as I imitate her. And said to me, but Nikki, where's your comic book? And I said, oh, you know, my must have. And she said, which I think means shut your mouth. Uh, cucumber <laughs> in Italian. I saw Sylvester take a comic book. She grabbed me by the arm and walked over to Sylvester's building. Not great news for me, but I figure Sylvester will be out someplace reading a comic book. Um, and we get there, and my mother knocks on the door, and Sylvester's, Sylvester's mother answers the door, and my mother says, Stella, your son took my son's comic book. And Stella looks over her shoulder and says, Sylvester, give Nicky back his comic book. Now, what I, one of the things I liked about that is she didn't give him the opportunity to lie. She didn't say, did you take? And he just walked up and handed me the comic book and looked at me like tomorrow was going to be a bad day for little Nicky. And <laughs> I looked at him as, trying to say with my eyes, I didn't say anything. She saw it. <laughs> the thing about that that stayed with me was that we didn't call the police. Um, Sylvester wasn't arrested. Um, the mothers handled it. Um, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to. I am overwhelmed by the weight that poor people carry in this country, and I think we need to stop criticizing the way they carry. Um, and in some ways, what motivated me was um, both to write this book about that time, but to tell the truth. And the only way I thought of to tell the real truth was through fiction. I've written law books and, and other books that are nonfiction. What the family did, what the neighborhood would do, how it would hold everything together, unless things got really bad. And then I would go to Uncle Lindsay. But other than that, it was a community that kind of took care of everything that was going on. So these guys, like Sylvester Riley, these guys that would take the lunch money, these guys were the ones that grew up and became part of the mob, different mobs. I didn't like them. I wanted to protect the kids that were having their money taken away from them. And basically, we formed a gang just so that um, we each could protect each other. You know, it wasn't we wanted to be tough guys. We wanted to sit in the park reading comic books with five or six guys 
instead of just one. So it, 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 I, it would be an easier way, and I had an in, um, and I didn't want it. I didn't want to become one of these guys. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you mentioned that you weren't sure exactly what your mother said, and hearing that reminded me of my dad, because my grandparents didn't, well, they spoke Italian in the house, but they would never teach the children. Because they, because they wanted to be able to speak amongst themselves without the kids knowing what they were saying, <laughs> and I was wondering if that's if you had a similar experience. You know, I, I did. My father's Greek. My mother was Italian, and um, they it was different. They did, they wanted me to be an American. They didn't want me to speak Greek. A lot of kids, a lot of Greek kids, went to Greek school, um, but uh, my grandmother spoke Italian. And I was able to understand her. My father's mother spoke Greek. Um, but it was, uh, they wanted me to be an American and not speak. I, I'm so sorry they didn't send me to Greek school and Italian school when I was a kid. It would have been wonderful. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it was an, basically an Italian neighborhood, Irish, Jewish, um, Puerto Rican, uh, but not, you know, they call New York a melting pot. Um, it was more like a fruit salad. <laughs> all different. We were all together, but we didn't, you know, we all, we all had a different taste. I think it was a kind teacher that taught me to read, that told me to read. And it was um, not liking these bullies and not wanting to be like them. A lot of other kids wanted to be like the bullies. Um, and wanted to join their club and ask kids for money and stuff like that. Um, but we didn't. Uh, my gang did Cherry Street Boys, the Weepers in the book. We weren't going to do that. When you say that the cops were never called, nobody ever went that way. And I know it was kind of a, it, it's generational in the sense that you, you, you take care of your own and your own, your, your own community and everyone's kind of doing that sort of thing. Um, but was there kind of a, was there an anti-police sentiment or was there, was there just people didn't want to ever involve the police for any particular reason or is it just something, it was just too, I mean, it would be too serious to do that. It would, it, there was an, all of those things, there was somewhat of an anti-police, but I didn't really know that. There was certainly, and there still is, I think, um, a culture where you stand up to the police. So if they tell you to get off the corner, you might shout some things back. And folks today that say, you know, these kids living in poor areas should just simply do what the police say, don't realize that those kids have to live in that neighborhood. And they're more concerned about their reputation in that neighborhood than what the police or middle class society thinks of them. Um, that, that, that would be dangerous. Um, but there was a sense that some cops were on the take. Other cops were tough. Other cops were, seemed to be honest and, and you can count on them. And I'll tell you a story I shouldn't tell. Well, that's the ones we want to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I first became a cop and it was, I was assigned after the academy to the 10th precinct. They send you around to different precincts, and then the 10th precinct 
is in Manhattan on Chelsea, just above Greenwich Village, a mixed area, it's a tough area. And I'm, I just walk a post. I'm just a regular old cop walking a post and hoping to one day get a seat. And a seat means that you get to ride around in a police car with somebody instead of walking a post all by yourself. And Tom Kenny um, had his partner was injured and left and he had to find a new partner. And so he would have different people ride in his car with him. And him and I kind of hit it off. I'd ride with him now and then. One day, he took me to a, uh, a manufacturer in his, in his sector. And he said to me, um, and he knew I'd like to have the seat. And he said to me, go in there. And it was like in November. And tell the guys sit at the counter, um, say, Merry Christmas, Mr. Goldstein. So I said, really? And he said, yeah, just do it. And I went in there and I said, Merry Christmas, Mr. Goldstein. And the guy said, wait a minute, officer, left, came back and handed me an envelope. I took the envelope. I went back and sat in the radio car, police car. And Tom Kenny said, what's in the envelope? And I opened it. I said, there's a bunch of cash in the envelope. And he said, what, well, how does that make you feel? And I said, I, I have to tell you, um, I, I don't want it. And, uh, but if you want it, you can have it. I won't say anything. I mean, I wasn't a hero. Um, I understand. Um, and he said, no, I, I don't want it either. I just want you to know how easy it was. And if you feel like that, um, go give the envelope back and you can ride with me. And I went back and I handed them the envelope and they said, no, no, please take it. No, 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 no. It's, it's all right. And I got back in the car and that's how I got my seat with Tom Kenny. Um, and that's the kind of cop I wanted to be. And that was, that was a fortuitous moment for me in the police department because I knew about Frankie Serpico and others. And I, I didn't know whether Tom Kenny would not want me to ride with him because I wouldn't take money. But as it turned out, it turned out that that was who Tom Kenny was, who probably taught me more about law than law school did. Um, and I, I got lucky. I got lucky finding him. So th there was a lot. I was I, I truly believe that I, I am luckier than I deserve to be. I'm not going to let God know, um, but I'm lucky. And, and I somehow made it out of the projects with moments of decisions. And so what made you um, decide to write this book series? So I, um, I wanted to. Uh, it, it, it's a hard question. So, again, my 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 doctorate is in is in sociology, primarily in social deviance. I think I wanted to learn about myself. And so. Um, the more I learned about being poor and the more I thought about my life growing up, I wanted to tell the truth about what it was like. I wanted to unmask something that most people have never seen. And I wanted to tell it not like a boring nonfiction sociological piece. I wanted to tell the truth and fiction is the way I thought is best if you want to tell the truth. Um, and after Weepers, I needed 
to unveil, I needed to dig deeper into Nunzio, the gangster, um, so that people had a better sense of who he was and and that he he was, I once said to him, he knew I was doing a lot of reading. So, so I would come back from the grocery store as I'm 11 years old and delivering groceries to somebody carrying a box. And, and a gang would know that I'm going to be coming back with cash in my pocket. So they would follow me. And then coming back, I would run. And I would run to the, to the tenements and onto the roofs. And I was good at jumping from roof to roof to roof. And they wouldn't do it. Um, probably why I became a paratrooper in later life, but it didn't bother me. Um, but I would find the public library and go in through the roof and into the fiction and poetry section. And I would read poems and fiction until I'd look out the window and the gang was gone. And then I'd go downstairs into the grocery store. Um, and so fiction always, it gave me wings. And so I thought if I wanted to tell the story of what this was like growing up here um, and and how many kids where a principal said, you know, you're never going to graduate from high school. How many kids just circled the train? How many kids just surrendered to that? Um, I really wanted to write something for them. And the interesting thing is when Weepers came out, I heard from a lot of the kids that I grew up with. It was like for me, it was like living twice. Um, and they contacted me. I remember this. And if you look at some of the reviews on Amazon, there's, there's a couple. There's one in particular from Larry Tataro, um, who said uh, I hadn't seen him for years. He, I don't remember the last time I saw him. Um, he was in a gang called the Red Wings. And he said, uh, infamous gang. He said, this is a great story. I loved it. But me and Nikki know it's a true story. Um, and I received a lot of feedback from kids that grew up in that neighborhood that are doing okay today. And a lot of kids that aren't doing so well. Um, and, and I like the effect of that. Um, it was a good feeling. And so I wanted to say more about, about Mario, um, about Nuncio. I'm sorry about, you know, when the book first came out, I gave it that I gave it to my uncle Mario, um, Weepers. And I said, you have the first copy. And he, his wife told me he went around telling everybody, Nunzio is really him. Nunzio. I said, Mario, I would have put your name in there. <laughs> um, but he told me to read The Prince. And I was a kid. And he said, try to read it. And I read it. And I didn't understand a lot of it. But I remember saying to him, the old cliche now, um, is it better to be feared of love. And he said, well, first of all, um, it says, is it safer to be feared than loved? And I didn't realize that. And he said, uh, fear. Allegedly, Mario was part of the Vito Genovese family in New York. And he said, fear tastes like sulfur. And love tastes like Sunday dinner with family. Love will take a bullet for you. Fear will move out of the way and wish the bullet well. If I can't have both, I'll pick love. And um, I wound up putting that in the book. Um, and it was touching. And I thought, people need to know this about this guy, Nuncio, that he was more than just the tough guy that he was. 
um, he 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 had some depth. He had some depth. I miss him. He died in March at the age of ninety nine. Um, and up until that point, he was walking and doing push ups and had his his mind was fine. Um, it's, it's a tough guy. How, how do you decide what stories you're going to use or what kind of things that have happened that you've seen or real stories that you're going to take and put into a book and, and, and which ones are you going to fictionalize? Like, how do you, how do you narrate, narrate through this? That's a hard question. Um, and, and I'm trying to think of the answer as, as <laughs> I, in the first place, I want the book to be entertaining. I want What I want you to do is read the book, and when you finish it, even if you don't remember my name or the, the name of the book, I want you to, to remember how you felt. So I want it to be entertaining. I want you to feel a certain way. But I don't want to shy away from um, troubling moments during our time, during, during those years. So, for example, when I was going down to paratroop school in Fort Camp at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, me and my best friend at the time in the Army, after spending 16 weeks together in advanced trainings, um, went down to Fort Benning, Georgia. We stopped in a small town outside of Fort Benning because we got down there early. And we walked into a bar together. And this was 1963. And Everybody told us how proud the president was and the American people. I was a kid from the projects. I was 18. Um, and uh, that um, everybody was with you and good luck in Vietnam and all of that stuff. And we stopped in a bar. We figured we'd get a drink. And we didn't see the sign that said whites only. And so my buddy, Elwood, um, wasn't allowed to go into the bar. Well. We were both in uniform, and us being us went in anyway. And the sheriff drove us to Fort Benning, Georgia, and dropped us there. Um, I wanted that story in this book, and book takes Nuncio's way. It takes place in the 60s. I fictionalize it, but I want that story in there. That's one of the reasons I like fiction. Um, I wanted you to have a certain feeling at the beginning of the first book, Weepers. It's Christmas Eve, 1951. I want it to be snowing, but a beautiful snow, because Angela's just this little kid walking along with his father on Christmas Eve. And I want you to love it, and I want you to see the snow coming down like feathers from a pillow fight. I want, I want the trees to be reaching to the silent sidewalks with crystal glove fingers. I want it to be just, well, the headline in the New York Times in 1951 on Christmas Eve was no snow for Christmas. Um, but I wanted it to snow. So fiction is great. So it's snowing. It's beautiful. It's all those things. But Angelo says to his father as they're walking, Papa, I'm glad Nona's newspaper was wrong. And his father says, yeah, the New York Times doesn't get it right all the time. And so I wanted to nod to the truth of, this, of what was going on. But again, I wanted you to have a certain feeling. 
So it, it, it's usually um, something to, to create an emotion. It's not just a story I was told. It's something that I want you to know either about the character that deepens the character or like what happened at Fort Benning to make you understand the time period. This takes place in 1960. Kennedy's going to become the president. Um, things are looking nice, but not so much every place. And I want to put you in the period where I think it's important for the feeling of the story. And so I, I don't know how I decide which ones to leave out, or which ones might be um, too controversial. Um, I, I subjectively, I hate doing it, but I subjectively will change words. So, you know, they, uh, when we walked into that diner, Elwood and I in the South, they didn't refer to him as a colored boy, but that's what I put in the book. Um, and, and those things I wrestle with a little bit, but I think are probably important as, as we move forward in life. And maybe we'll come to a period where we don't do that anymore. But um, it, I, I want you to feel the emotion of it and, and the time. Oh, man, it is it is 70 percent research, 5 percent writing and 20 percent rewriting. Um, I knew what my apartment looked like in the projects and I knew what other apartments looked like. Nevertheless, I wrote to the New York Housing Authority and asked for floor plans. Um, I wrote to the Catholic Church because the, the prominent figure is a priest there. And I wanted information. I, thanks to my wife in Nunzio's way, there's a scene where um, a crew from an airline is getting, is, is leaving the, the airliner and walking toward the terminal, um, pulling their suitcases, their little suitcases behind them. And my wife said to me, well, this is 1960. Did suitcases have wheels? <laughs> and I said, you know, I just assumed they did. And we looked it up and they did not. Um, there were wooden plaques with wheels and you put your suitcase on top of that and you pull the suitcase and the little wooden skate would go with it. And in 1970, sometime, some smart guy said, hey, why don't we just put wheels on suitcases? But um, that's how particular and meticulous you have to be with the research. They didn't call in the 50s, jeans, jeans. We wore dungarees. Um, uh, I asked, uh, in, interview tons of people that I grew up with, talking to a little girl, a gr little girl, a girl that I grew up with, a woman, uh, about what it was like and what she wore. And she told me, and, and I know you wore those jeans and a scarf around your neck. And she said, oh, those were hickey scarves. It was hickey scarves. I had no idea. And... Um, a, a ton of research, at least 70% of writing ought to be research, even if you, even if you grew up there and you think you know it. And going back there, I went back and took pictures, took pictures of my apartment door, of the hallway, of the stairway going down, of the buildings across the street. Uh, so when I walk, 
I know exactly what I'm, what I'm passing. Um, yeah, ton of research. How do you think, you know, when you did the first book and now the second book, um, does this sort of change your perspective? Because when you kind of review a lot of things you've been through and when you, when you put the book together, you know, you get through the memories and the research and all that stuff, and you complete it and you look back at it, do you, does it change you in a way too? Yeah, it does. And, and, and sometimes not in good ways. I actually went to counseling. I don't think anybody knows that. Um, really, I mean, I remembered things from my past. It was like living twice that I had forgotten. I'll tell you the story. Um, I'd forgotten that my father would come home from work and take me in the bedroom and beat me with a belt, but would say to me, um, scream as I'm hitting you. I won't hit you that hard, but you have to scream so your mother knows I'm punishing. Um, uh, I remembered that. I remembered things like that that I wrestled with and actually felt guilty about, hey, you're giving me my 50 minutes. I love this. This is counseling. I actually felt um, <laughs> guilty about that, wishing that I was, I'd scream. You know, but I was a tough, I was going to be a tough kid. I didn't care how hard he hit me. Um, but now I realize that screaming would have helped my father. And so my counselor said, you were a kid. You, it wasn't your problem. It was your father's problem. It was your mother's problem. Blah, blah, blah. I won't go through that thing. But I wound up going to counseling because of a lot of things I remembered from my childhood, um, that were uncomfortable. And I wanted a way to deal with and my wonderful wife, who is just who, um, when I'm writing in my three hours where you're not supposed to bother me, will often say things like, um, hey, Hemingway, can you take the dog for a walk? <laughs> um, <laughs> this suggests that I go get some counseling and talk about, um, you know, <laughs> what it was like growing up and stuff like that. And I did. And I did. So, um, when someone um, picks up the book, takes it home, and reads it, besides the entertainment, what is it you hope that they take away from it? I hope that it it makes them think, you know, I didn't know that um, these kids growing up in these projects in these poor areas um, uh, were going through all this, that it was that tough. I had a case where... As a public defender, um, I remember a judge was pissed off because a client um, was late for court. She she was supposed to be, she was, she was 15 minutes late. And he scolded her. And I explained to the judge, you know, um, she lives in a car. She has two children. The first thing she has to do is find a safe place to deposit these two little kids. And then she has to get to court on time. You might not like this, but being in court on time is not the most important thing in her life, even today. Um, and I, I want people to, not that you have to feel sorry. I, that the last thing, me or anybody else growing up in the project, is that you, that you feel sorry for. I want you to understand. Just a, a politician in Wisconsin once said about a kid that got in trouble in school. I don't know why his parents uh, don't do something about it because, you know, I can tell you when I was a kid, 
if I came downstairs in the morning, when I went into the breakfast room, my father would let me have it. And I wound up saying to him, uh, listen, you just said three things that I want to tackle. First, when you came downstairs, you had a stairway in the place where you live. These kids don't have a stairway. You have a breakfast room with breakfast. They don't have that. You have a father sitting there. They don't have that. Start again. What happens when this kid comes out from the car or from the trailer or from wherever it is? I want them to, to see this different world. And I want them to leave feeling, um, feeling, I, I think, I think it's what I said earlier, feeling impressed by the load poor people have to carry rather than criticizing the way they carry. If it doesn't look heavy, it doesn't mean that it's not heavy. That's what I want them to improve, the feeling. You don't have to read the books in order, do you? Like you could pick up the new book and it stands on its own. It does. It, it is certainly, if you had both books in your hand, I would say read Weepers first and just make It'll just flow more easily into Nunzio's way. But uh, I tried to put, and it's a tough line to walk. Nunzio's way is three years later. So you have to figure out what all the characters, how, how they've become, what they're doing, how much backstory from Weepers should I put in so it stands alone. But I don't want to put in too much. So if you read Weepers, you're not bored. Um, but yeah, you can read Nunzio's way. By itself. So uh, where are you going to go with this? Are you, do you plan on doing a few more of these, or is this sort of it? Um, I had four in mind. So there's going to be, there's a relationship between this kid, Angelo. Um, so if you, if you read both of them, you get a sense that Angelo is starting to become leaning more towards criminality. He's going from that good kid. When I first, and when I first wrote it, Angelo's name was Nikki, but he couldn't do anything wrong. He was the sweetest kid in the world. And so I had to get rid of that because that was me. So I had to make him Angelo because he needs to be a really flawed character. And you could see his, his change. You can see him changing. It's one of the things his mother says in the first book. I feel like Angelo is becoming more like the neighbor. And at the same time, you can see Nunzio, the gangster, softening a little. And, and at some point, by book four, um, they, they're going to meet. Um, and I'm not sure exactly. I, I like to write myself into corners that I don't know how to get out of and then try to figure out what's going to happen. Um, I have a sense of the whole story for four books. Um, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen with Angelo. I know what I think is going to happen. What kind of writer are you? Are you the person that just can sit and write and, and put time aside and do it, or do you have to be in a certain mood? No, I, I, I'm a fan of Dumbo. I, I, I think I think the feather is inside of you. There's no muse. You know, you, you have to write. Um I, if I'm in a bad mood, you know, if I'm, I take care of my, more than you want to know, I take care of my sister who has a 60 IQ. I've always taken care of her and now she's an adult and I care for her and it is stressful. 
Um, and so there's times when I just can't write. But I try to sit down and scratch out three, three solid hours where I'm not going to get on YouTube. I'm not going to look at Facebook. I'm not, I have to write. And my trick is I never finish what I know I'm writing right now. I stop before I finish that chapter or that scene so that the next time I come back, there's no writer's block. I know exactly what I'm writing and, and I'm in a flow. I make, I make a, I, I'll write, I don't write the way you're supposed to. Uh, I'll write, uh, I'll scribble it down by hand on a piece of paper with four sheets of paper, the story from beginning to end. So I scribble down four books on four pages. And so I know there's a story from beginning to end. And then I'll write three rough chapters and then write them again and then sleep on them and then walk the dog and think about them. And then two days later, I'll think about changing them. And then I'll create implication points, points that change a character, points that change a scene and move them around a little bit. And then go to chapter four and try another one and then five. And then when I'm finished with that first complete draft, I give it to my wife because nobody is tougher on it. Um, and she and she will go through it and cut and change and scratch stuff. And she's wonderful. I do the same. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? <laughs> same with my wife. My wife looks at my stuff. Yep. I think that's and perfect. Beats the, beats the heck out of it. <laughs> and that's what you want. That's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm wondering, too, with your characters, can you hear them? Do you, do you have an inner monologue when, when you're writing, or is it more of a, a visual experience for you? How does, how does that work? Wow. Um, it, it, um, it is a big flaw with me. I talk out loud. It's not even an inner monologue. Even if, like, I'm in a – I've been told to be quiet. Um, even if I'm in a coffee shop and I start with – if I'm doing dialogue, I am talking out loud. I want to, I want to hear um, what they're saying and I want to say it. And, uh, you know, I get, I get rid of the niceties. There's, there's not a lot of, uh, how are you? I know you weren't feeling well. Well, I'm feeling better than it. I mean, it is dialogue to the point. Um, uh, and again, I'm saying it out loud and then I have to listen to it. I have to have somebody read it to me. Um, and my son is great at that, my wife, my daughter. <laughs> and when I'm editing, my daughter is a high school English teacher. I said to her um, with the first book and with this book, with the first book, I said, Erica, tell, tell me the difference between using a comma and a semicolon. I really want to <laughs> fix this. And she said, Dad, just, just give it to me. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> and I just gave it to her. Um, uh, but... Um, boy, I need that. I, uh, I edit for words. I edit for um, getting in the way of action. I um, like, for example, uh, Angela's going to be in a knife fight, and he realizes that that his knife is is at home. Uh, at first, I said um, Angela felt his stomach drop. He remembered he left his knife at home. Well. What I'm doing when I do that from Angelo's point of view is I'm getting between you, the reader, and the action in my book. So instead of saying Angelo felt his stomach drop, you change that to Angelo's stomach drop. 
this knife was at home. And then the action goes right to the reader instead of me telling you how Angelo was feeling. Does that make sense? And so, Absolutely. Show, don't tell. Exactly. It, absolutely. And so I'll go through all of that. My wife, bless her, goes through all of that stuff and circles stuff and puts marks on it. It's a mess. <laughs> it's, I don't want to even go to it at first. Um, but, but then I'll do it. And then um, the final draft, her and I will sit side by side and we'll read it together. Um, and she, that, that's where she said, did they have wheels on uh, suitcases? <laughs> did you check that out? Uh, no, I didn't. That's a good one. <laughs> Let me check it. Um, uh, that's important. So by the time we finish, then it's time for an editor to do a line edit and find or my daughter. And then that's the draft that was sent to my wonderful publisher who, for some reason, gave me a traditional publishing contract twice now. And I love her for it. And um, then she'll, she'll read it and catch things that we both missed um, and have somebody read it. Well, absolutely. It's that's a process. Good. Yeah. Worth it, Mia. It is worth it. It's fun. And um, <laughs> what I love most about Weepers, the first one. What I love most about it is um, since it's traditionally published, I can't say here's who I want to do the audible or the audio book. But my son Josh um, wound up doing it. He auditioned for it and they picked him. And so anytime I want, I can listen to my son tell me the story. Um, for uh, Nunzio's way, the assassin is a woman. And my son and my daughter are going to do the audio book together. Um, and that's a treasure for an old guy. That's great. Yeah, that's a treasure. Okay. So let's see. Uh, how do you like people to find you? Do you have a website? Do you do social media? Where, where do people find Nick? I, I, I do have a website. Um, and nickcharkis.com, you know, H, H, whatever it is. Nick Charkis is one word, dot com. Um, my email, I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I respond to people. I, I enjoy book clubs of fun. I went to a book club where they made me an, an egg cream, which is very New York. Um, um, a woman who is going to be 101 years old uh, this year invited me to her book club in Peoria, Illinois. She read Weepers, and she had no idea people ever lived like that. She was in her 90s. Would I come to her book club? These are people in their 90s who are, uh, who are corresponding with me through the Internet on Facebook and I was amazed. I hope I can still be reading and doing that. So I went, I went to Peoria and <laughs> talked to a book club. Um, people can find me any place and they can ask me anything. And um, if I can help young writers, I do it. Uh, I think um, there was a teacher that gave me wings by telling me to read everything and handed me a book on poems, by the way, called Yesterday and Today. 
still have it and told me to read everything. Oh, I'll tell you something. Uh, when I was in an army hospital, um, I was injured um, and recovering. I was reading Catcher in the Rye again and wound up reading everything by Salinger and wrote to, to J.D. Salinger, Cornish, New Hampshire. This is 1963 or 64. Um, and I, I didn't know if it would get them. It was a fan mail basically saying, have you written anything other than these things? This is what I've read so far. Uh, and if you haven't, would you write something? And he wrote back to me. And I have the letter framed at home. And his first line sounds just like him. Is, um, I am at best a one-shot letter writer. And I think he was telling me we're not going to become pen pals. Um, <laughs> but he wanted to answer my letter and said, I see you're in an army hospital. Uh, something I remember very well. And that made me remember Seymour Glass and, and the fact mm -hmm. that he was in an army hospital. And I like the fact that um, Salinger weaved truth and real stuff in with his stories, with his fiction. And that was part of my inspiration, just just reading Salinger and stuff like that. Well. Well, we'll have your website up for people so they're listening. They can do one click and find you and, and uh, you know, maybe uh, ask you out. You know, <laughs> do, some, do some reading, the charmer. Um, well, it's been a real pleasure, and we really appreciate you being on the show. And, uh, of course, you've got the two books out now, and the newest one just came out in uh, September. And uh, the man we're talking to is uh, Nick Sharkis, and thank you for being on the show. Alan, please recover quickly and easily. And Dave, thank you, both of you. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www. Houseofmystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com HouseofMystery.com Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.